from the brilliant mind that brought you The Martian. In the face of overwhelming odds, I'm left with only one option. I'm gonna have to science the shit out of this. And the smash follow-up hit, Artemis. a spectacular new work of fiction. A gripping adventure story every bit the rival of The Martian awaits you in Project Hail Mary. Ryland Grace is the sole survivor on a desperate last chance mission and if he fails humanity and the earth itself will perish. On a spaceship hurtling through space and time it's up to him to solve an impossible scientific mystery and conquer an extinction-level threat to our species. A space virus is attacking our sun. And with the nearest human being light years away, he's got to do it all alone. Or does he? An irresistible interstellar adventure as only Andy Weir can deliver. Project Hail Mary is a tale of discovery, speculation, and survival that rivals the Martian in every way, while taking us to places it never dreamed of going. Join me on this adventure with UCSD's own Andy Weir in this thrilling episode of Into the Impossible with me, Brian Keating. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Today's very special guest, it's Andy Weir joining us from a location, I assume, up north in California, Andy? Yeah, that's right. And hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm in Saratoga, California, which is kind of um, near San Jose. It's in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's a pleasure to welcome you back. We met uh, a couple times when you were back. Uh, I can't say it's your alma mater, right? I, there must be some word for for uh, when you didn't graduate, but uh, you know, I think you, uh, you you've done okay, even though you didn't graduate. I do want to talk about our relation, your relationship to UCSD and stuff like that later. But I want to introduce you, Andy Weir, uh, author of, uh, of many many wonderful um, works of art and science fiction, including Artemis, including The Martian, The Egg, <clears throat> and this book. Project Hail Mary, which I'll have my producer hold up on the screen. I listened to it. I read it in a digital advanced copy form. And uh, it's, a, it's a book about a teacher uh, who turns into an astronaut and then wakes up on a spaceship with amnesia and realizes it's up to him to save the world from an algae that's eating the sun. Now, Andy, I don't want to give away a spoiler, but it's almost impossible not to. So I'm just going to say, right. if you don't want the spoiler, just you know, plug your ears for one second. But uh, Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's time you knew. <laughs> and Leah is the sister of Luke. I'm so sorry to give it away. But um, it's it's actually, you know, I love this book. I think it's your best book. I, I know you're probably you know, tired of hearing it. But, uh, well, but you write. I'm tired of hearing that. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing that, that really I love about this book, I've listened to all, you know, all three of your uh, all three of your most famous books, The Martian, Artemis, and this book. Uh, I think the spoiler grace period is at least a year. So people, you know, um, uh, they haven't listened to the to the uh, Red Artemis or The Martian. Too bad for you guys, but because um, we might we might spoil those books really thoroughly. But I love listening to the books. So the last uh, before this one, I listened to this one. This is phenomenal. Um, and actually, I think this one you almost have to listen to it. So even if you buy it, please buy the audio copy too, because <laughs> yes, buy both kinds. I appreciate that. Uh, and the hard copy, hard, and co the hard copy, <laughs> and then also just mail me some cash. <laughs> Venmo too, Andy yes, Weir. Exactly. Andy Weir. Um, so what was the process like of the audiobook this time? I'll just say that there's an incredible uh, amount of, of audio engineering. And I want to talk to you about that, about um, communication, because that plays a huge role in this book. Not only the science, but also linguistics plays a huge role in it. I've had on uh, Stephen Wolfram, who played a big role in Arrival. 
and um, and the, uh, the linguistics behind that. Um, how hard and challenging was it to record the audiobook this time? You didn't read it, but you were deeply involved in it. Yeah, I was involved in Audible. Uh, they went through a whole bunch of clever stuff uh, to figure it out. Uh, it's narrated by the incredibly talented uh, Roy, Ray Porter, who is, of course, just awesome top tier audiobook narrator there and um yeah they they came up with uh you know after going back and forth and trying out a few things they came up with um what i think is a pretty good way of dealing with that challenge that the story presents in the audio retelling and i think they did a great job in how they approached it i'm trying not to get too spoilery i mean i know that we're I mean, you're probably going to warn your listeners, oh, okay, there, here there be spoilers. But there's kind of, I would say, two layers of spoiler in this book. There's the normal spoilers that, okay, well, you're going to learn about this stuff in the first couple of chapters anyway. And then there's like an you know, epic spoiler that happens uh, about 120 pages into the book that you probably don't want to have ruined for you. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> the um, the main character, of course, in this book is a teacher. And the first place I want to start off, uh, after moving from the uh, from the very multi talented uh, narration of the audiobook, which narrates not only you know there are female characters, male ch- characters. Of course, your previous book, Artemis, was narrated by Rosario Dawson, yes. uh, which was just uh, delightful. I've, been, I've had a run of really good narrators. Like I've had um, R.C. Bray was the original Martian narrator, and yep. then. Um, and then it got re-recorded with Will Wheaton mm-hmm. as the narrator, and that was just because the um, the rights to the to the Bray recording expired, and so Audible needed to make a new recording. Um, then, uh, then of course Rosario Dawson narrated Artemis, and then you know uh, Ray, Ray Porter for, for this. So it's it's awesome. Kind of least- for better narrators. The main character, uh, who's an astronaut, uh, Grace, who becomes a um, who becomes an un- unwitting and uh, a hero in the story uh, as an astronaut, as you'll find out, um, and uh, and he has amnesia. I don't think that's too much of a spoiler. That comes in very early in the book, it's like right away. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I don't want to spoil page one, but uh, there you <laughs> yeah, go. <laughs> I feel oh, like I, that one's okay. <laughs> I feel like, you know, there's this canard that those who, you know, who can do do and those who can't do teach. And here I am a college professor at your, <laughs> what, what, did you ever have a teacher, you know, and what you did and, and, and that taught you what you do, or uh, do you feel like you're pretty much self-made and, and a lot of what you're become successful at? Well, I mean, I guess I'm self-taught on most of the science stuff just because it's something that's always been interesting to me. But um, I had, I certainly had teachers, especially in high school, that were really influential in kind of fostering my interest to that. So I'll make a special shout out to Mr. Fong from Livermore High School. His name is Nelson <laughs> Fong and uh, uh, Mrs. Cox and uh, Mr. Nicola, who was actually a, my history teacher, but he just made it really interesting. Yeah, I think the depth of uh, scholasticism here in the book, you know, I was actually just teaching my cosmology, upper division cosmology class, and I was telling them, you know, again, I have struggle, you know, coming up with the name for what you are and how you relate to this fine university besides epic donor. And I want to thank you for (laughs) For the Weir, uh, for the Weir Airport, uh, we needed that. At, at yes, the, the, the Weir Airport. Yeah, spaceport. Sorry, spaceport. <laughs> oh, sure, <laughs> we'll take that. Yeah, um, but it was uh, you know really ripped from from a lot of modern headlines, and we're talking about things today in my cosmology class that you can measure the distance to an object using many different ways. You can measure it using a ruler. You can measure it using the angular diameter that it subtends, and you can measure it using the luminance that it emits if it's emitting luminance and the inverse square law. And of course, all these, you know, our our tools are used in cosmology. But I think what I love about your books, including The Martian, which I made, you know, required reading for my students, my graduate students, when they go down to Chile in the Atacama Desert at 17,000 feet, which makes a tiny appearance in this book, by the way. Yeah, Uh, yeah, the the Atacama Observatory. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I want to invite you, by the way, I want to invite you to the Simons Observatory at 17,200 feet in the Atacama Desert. Probably not doing that, but okay. (laughs) <laughs> Seems well, a, little bit, a little bit middle of nowhere-ish for my tastes <laughs> well it's one of the places nasa does go to simulate the martian environment uh but anyway oh, i know yeah 
the resourcefulness of the characters. And I know that you're a tinkerer. You reputed to have still have all of your digits, even though you have a circular saw that you use to make uh, different objects in your in your home workshop. I think there's some kind of op- 3D printer maybe behind you. I don't know. Uh, um, that's, a, that's a laser cutter, but yeah. Laser, okay, so still that even more impressive. You have all your eyeballs. Yeah, yes. you have your eyeballs and your fingers. I have a rule in my lab. I have a sign that says, don't look into the laser with your remaining eye. eye. Yeah. <laughs> so was this always natural to you? Were you exposed to, to, not to lasers, but were you exposed to like curiosity, tinkering spirit, building clocks, building stuff? Were you exposed to that by, uh, by these mentors that you just gave shout outs to, or did it come naturally to you? Uh, that came naturally to me. I've just always had an interest in that sort of, you know, I, I really like mechanical systems, which is funny because I don't really write about them. But um, uh, yeah, yeah, just just the way things work <laughs> has always been really fascinating to me. Um, and so uh, thinking about the book, you know, I heard an interview with my friend, Matt Kaplan, who's a member of the Planetary Society, oh, yeah. the Planetary Radio. He's actually coming to interview me next week here at UCSD. He's a friend. Um, and he was saying, you know, that uh, it, it's what's remarkable about you is that you uh, you have this confidence, you have this thorough, you know, research ability, which would make a great graduate student or, you know, a research scientist. But you also are not afraid to just say, you know, F it, I'm just going to make stuff up and have neutrinos store, you know, energy. And how, yeah. do you balance, how do you balance the like the hard science where you'll get the exact because I look these things up, Andy, you know, mm-hmm. I look up the, the, the wavelength and I actually have these memorized, you know, what wavelength lines of the infrared does CO2 absorb at? This is pertinent to the book. That's not a spoiler, right? There's two right. of them. Yeah. You talk about those in the Petrova line, you know, which, which, which it doesn't exist, but, but anyway, but then the neutrino story, how do you balance that as a hard science fiction author? How do you balance the realism with the, like, just sometimes I'm going to say F it and just, just make it up. Well, I mean, usually I have to make something up. Usually I have to do something, but I want it to be as inobtrusive as possible. I want it to be, I don't want to, you know, just give a ship a warp drive or anything like that. I want to, I want to, minimize the violations to physics that I have to do. Uh, in the case of Project Aylmary, it's like you have to go all the way down to the uh, quantum level, literally, before you find where I was hand-waving. <laughs> and actually, you can use neutrinos to store mass. The problem is you can't store neutrinos. Um, and so that's the part that I made up. You, you could use neutrinos, and the neutrinos really are their own antiparticle. If you do manage to get two neutrinos to whack into each other, then they would create two photons in this infrared band of wavelength. Right, yeah, of course, uh, you know, neutrinos were proposed. They were almost in the 1930s, Wolfgang Pauli proposed them. And then for a string of years, there were Nobel Prizes whenever these new particles would be awarded. And then the famous Isidore Rabbi said, uh, I propose that a Nobel Prize goes to the man who does not discover a new particle this year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's too many, too many of them. Um, <clears throat> so when we're looking at, yeah, so there, there has to be some level of plausibility. But is there ever, you know, something where thinking in the back of your mind, you know, like, uh, I might be going too far? Or do you feel like you've earned enough credibility with just your sheer dogged, you know, research ability, that it doesn't matter, basically. Um, well, <laughs> well, I mean, I, ho- I, I hope I haven't gone too far. But yeah, I, I always try to keep it pretty minimal in terms of invasiveness, you know, to physics. So I never really think I've gone too far because I kind of, if anything, I spend too much time and effort going further down the rabbit hole than I need to, where I could have just hand waved much earlier and nobody would have objected, you know. You know, this book, as I said in the very beginning, the only a minimal kind of uh, intro to it that I get, you know, basically there's some form of life that uh, is, is afflicting uh, the sun and it's causing massive destruction. Now, this not only taps into our global pandemic that we're experiencing, it has resonance, no pun intended, with global warming, et cetera. Um, were all these things, you know, kind of going through your mind? I mean, did, when did you start this project? Was it pre-COVID-19 on the horizon or did, uh, how, how was it with regard to the pandemic? And certainly global warming has been around for a long time, right? Um, right. So I com- I finished the entire book before COVID-19 struck. So any, any correlation between the book and the pandemic is pure coincidence. <laughs> um, so, you know, it, there are some things that seem to be parallels, but I finished the whole thing before the pandemic. So there's nothing like that 
um, intentional. As for global warming or climate change, um, I never have any sort of meaning or, or message or moral in my stories. Um, in this case, it's not climate change. It's not like man-made climate change. It's not CO2 emissions. It's literally an alien algae growing on the surface of the sun that is now absorbing enough of the sun's luminance that Earth itself is in danger because it just is not getting enough energy from the sun. And if anything, the there's even just a weird thing in the book that um, the global warming is now what they want to have happen. Like, because the earth is not getting enough energy, so we want to retain the energy that we are getting, make it make it stay a little longer. And so they're deliberately doing things to increase global warming. Right, and uh, <clears throat> when you look through the, the scientific method plays a huge role in the book and many of the heroes in the book are scientists and, and, uh, and, and even, you know, sort of the military industrial complex is playing a role because you have to mobilize, you know, kind of planetary resources to do that. Um, to what level suspension of disbelief would come in there? Do you feel like such a thing could be mobilized? Do you feel like we saw that in COVID-19 at all? I and mean, you come out of COVID-19 thinking that your the scenario outlined in Project Hail Mary is more plausible or less plausible after what we've seen the last 16 months? I would say more plausible because it, it kind of validates my my beliefs that we can pretty much come together pretty significantly as a as a species to like fight a common enemy. And uh, yeah, I mean, of course, you know, it, it's a little bit different because um, in, in uh, Project Hail Mary, it's a global systemic issue. It's, it's like everybody dies if we don't solve this, right? You can't, it, there's nothing any one country can do to protect just its citizens, right? And that's not the case with COVID. Each country can make its own rules and implement its own strategies for trying to slow or stop the spread or, you know, whatever else. So it's a little different. Um, but I do see an awful lot of cooperation just in the world in general. Um, yeah, so I'm, 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 I mean, obviously, we weren't perfect about it. We, humanity, we weren't perfect about it. And there was some sloppiness there. But uh, I don't know. I, I feel like we're turning a corner on COVID. Um, the U.S. is now um, making so much vaccine that we're, we're now starting to send it to other countries. Um, so in this book, I find that there's either something hilarious, um, some juicy science nerd nugget on every page, uh, even the, the, the table of contents, you know, it brought me to tears that, that library <laughs> donation, I was weeping, Andy, that was, <laughs> and actually That's the, fantastic. Beatles, Beatles, the ISBN is just hilarious. <laughs> yeah, that was, I played the lottery, that number that, that was, oh, there we go. Um, now, now, tell me, I mean, it's not a spoiler, but you dedicate it to John Paul, George, and Ringo. Why is that? Um, I'm just a big Beatles fan, and there's a lot of, like, little Beatles um, references in the book, so I thought it was... Oh, yes, yes, there were Stooges references as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's delightful. But I love, for, personally, whenever I get a shout-out, you know, it's like... Uh, and he's talking to me. He knows me. He understands me. He knows that I was an amateur astronomer and amateur astronomers play a role in this book. That's and I, I think it's, it's remarkable. I talked about this name drop alert, name drop alert. I talked to Neil deGrasse Tyson about a month uh, ago and he was saying astronomy is one of the few fields where amateurs play a significant role, where amateurs are actually doing useful science. They're doing variable star research. They're doing binary star research. In, this, in your book, they're saving the universe. Yeah. Uh, also, I find with you, amateur writers. You turned. You weren't a professional writer. Right. Now yeah, you become. True. You went from amateur to. Uh, do you see commonality between? Are there other fields of amateur science or amateur engineering uh, that seem to convey, you know, a certain type of skill set that's transferable to writing or, or some other field? I mean, uh, I think a lot of amateur uh, software engineering can quickly turn into a profession, and a lot of a lot of like um, really good software comes out of people just doing it for the hell of it, not you know working for a company or anything. Um, what else is there that's really good? Um, in some of the newer things like three D printing and stuff, um, professional companies are getting very good at it, but it was the amateurs with their little home kits that kind of worked the kinks out of the system figure out mm -hmm. how those things worked. That's cool. Yeah. So there's a lot of things where, you know, you can be a quote unquote amateur and really have an effect on the field. 
Also, any, anything related to art or entertainment, I would say, because you can just be, you know, good at this stuff. You could be like just a really good artist and you like yeah. make a good sculpture or a painting or something and you could start a trend in the art world. And there you're an amateur who just changed the field. Yeah. And, and this uh, YouTube economy, you know, my, I've become sure, a creator yeah. and my, uh, you know, my subscriber really appreciates it. <laughs> uh, well, uh, hi, hi, Brian's mom. How you doing? <laughs> She's my toughest critic. You know, they say don't read the comments and I don't, whenever she leaves a comment, I do not read it. Um, but <laughs> the converse of, of this, you know, of the amateur community is, is now prominent and it's kind of adjacent to your field and my field in some sense. And that's ufology. You know, there's tons of ufologists out there nowadays and there's a big data dump coming in, uh, in just about three weeks from the time of release of this, uh, the Pentagon is going to release all this data. Um, you must get harassed by, you know, tons and tons of, of, of media requests or, or what have you or asked about it. Do you think that there's, there's like almost the problem of too much data or garbage in garbage out uh, uh, danger, or, or do you think it's good and healthy that so many amateur ufologists are out there? Well, I mean, I don't believe that we've ever been visited by any aliens. So let's be clear. Um, but I mean, if people want anything that people do and take seriously as a science expands human knowledge, even if it's just to say like, yeah, I've confirmed that that thing wasn't a UFO, it was an airplane, or that thing wasn't a UFO, it was a reflection off the camera lens, and so on. So there's, you know, negative results are just as good as positive results in terms of um, advancing humankind. However, I do feel like ufologists, like many kind of I don't want to be insulting, but pseudosciences um, tend to not really follow the scientific method very well. And they tend to really start with a conclusion and then really try hard to work backwards to justify it. And so you'll almost always find some sort of leap of logic or some sort of gap in the proof that just, you know, you'd never get away with that in a scientific paper. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's one of the contexts that, you know, I was hoping we turn to next. And, and you actually spoke recently. We saw each other recently. You spoke at the SETI Institute virtually. And I'm one of their, you know, minor contributors. I, I haven't reached the weir level of you know, <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the weir airport at the SETI Institute. Right. <laughs> right. The, the Jill Tarter helipad. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but the, um, but I gave a talk there a couple of years back and I said, you know, if one of my students handed in the Drake equation, I would fail her or him because it's never presented with error bars. You know, it's like, you have, if you handed an equation or a plot and it's, it's funny because it's like, here's this equation and it's got hundred percent uncertainty. If you estimate something, it's a hundred, it could be zero. It could be an infinite you know, or 10,000 alien. And so it shouldn't be so surprising. But one thing I love about this book, well, probably, you could easily make a version of the Drake equation where uh, for each of the input values, you have to specify error ranges and yes. then you can derive the error bars. Yeah. So I do that at my SETI Institute talk. Maybe I'll put a link here somewhere over there <laughs> in the video. Uh, and I do that and I say, here's an example. Because one of the solutions to the to the Fermi paradox is that just as you and I go to the zoo, I take my kids to the zoo, that I don't let them bang on the gorilla cage and, you know, and say, hey, here we are. Like, in other words, the aliens might not want to disturb us, right? So they might be here, but they don't disturb us. So we don't know that they're here because we don't um, they're not observable because they cloak themselves for some reason. And um, so I did an estimation. I said, I'm from San Diego. As you used to live here. We have the world famous San Diego Zoo and Wild Animal Park. Oh, yeah. And if you remember, we had this sculpture here on campus with this netting that's about 17 feet tall. And I always say that's the catch escape giraffes yeah. in the San Diego Zoo. Oh, well, we always called it the koala catchers when I oh, was yeah. there. <laughs> I always give it as a quiz for the visiting string theorists that come here. What is that thing here? Uh, but anyway, um, so I gave an example in my SETI Institute. I said, like, how many um, how many people are at the San Diego Zoo right now? And you can go through the math. And if you don't give an error bar, it could be zero or it could be eight thousand. <laughs> you know, and it's actually close to about eight thousand. But uh, but yeah, so I think I think you're right. If you can do something that expands human knowledge, that it reduces the Bayesian confidence interval, it tightens it up. And that's a good, that's a service. And one thing I love about your, um, your, your, your book and, and all your books is that you, you think kind of like an alien, like, in other words, <laughs> you're going to come in. Uh, and one of those Thank ways you fellow human, <laughs> I know that you are speaking in jest for I am a human like you. I love metabolizing <laughs> protocol, <laughs> mitochondrial Krebs cycle violation. I, I, I love breathing oxygen. <laughs> 
Uh, we too sh- exchange long protein strands to communicate. Um, uh, so uh, one, one thing I've thought about and has been in the astronomical community is where should we look? So one of my colleagues upstairs, uh, Professor Shelley Wright, she studies optical SETI. And one thing in the book that you make quite prominent use of is that these, these algae, you know, have a signature and that, you know, perhaps other civilizations might also know about that signature. Do you think we've been going about SETI the wrong way? In other words, like, should we look for extraterrestrials using some kind of universal signature of that we are aware of? I, I mean, or, or are we, you know, should we look uh, as broadly as possible? I mean, well, I mean, I'm hardly qualified to comment on that, and much smarter people than me have already worked all those questions through at SETI, but don't they kind of do that with the hydrogen line? I mean, Yeah, there's a 21-centimeter line, but of course that's a radio line, and it's you know not as powerful perhaps as an optical line or you know something like that, hmm. or as the Petrova line perhaps. Yes, oh well, yeah. Um, but yeah, oh, and by the way, just uh, calling back to earlier in the discussion, yeah. uh, my answer to the Fermi paradox is um, not the cloaking devices or anything like that. My answer is, I believe there is probably, in, you know, just looking at the Drake equation, there's probably intelligent life out there. But I also believe we will never be able to go faster than light, nor transfer, nor transmit ener- nor transmit information faster than light. So I think that there, you know, if it turns out that the nearest intelligent life form is a thousand light years away. Like if they're looking at us with a super advanced telescope right now, they're seeing like the way things were in the year, you know, 1021. And if we said hi right now, it would take 2000 years to get a response, you know? So I'm just, um, I just, that my answer to the Fermi paradox is the inviolability of the speed of light. Yeah, yeah, that is uh, certainly not only a good idea, as Einstein said, but the law but the as law. well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, maybe while we're still on that topic of aliens, I know that's not not really a focus of the book. Well, you know, in, in in a large scheme of things, let me just say, have you thought about these, you know, kind of epic battles between you know the Stephen Hawking's and the and the Elon Musk's of the world, in, in terms of like the great filter and. And, you know, should we should we respond if we get a message, you know, tomorrow uh, just because they won't know about us? You know, it doesn't mean that there isn't a beam of light coming towards us right now with some information. Should we respond or as Hawking said, you know, that would be like ringing the dinner bell saying you know, I'm, I'm ready for I'm ready for you now <laughs> for dinner. I have no idea how to answer that because it's all just wild speculation. Um, <laughs> but I, I would think if if I mean. I would want to answer. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, we talked a little bit about uh, some of the connections uh, in the book between, um, you know, or rather in your past, between your, your upbringing, et cetera. I think I uh, read somewhere your father was a particle physicist. Is that right? Yeah. Well, oh. I mean, and your mom I, was- I say uh, my mom was an engineer. Um, I say particle physicist generally because it's easier than explaining the truth, which is he was a linear accelerator physicist. Um, so he worked with electrons a lot, but I mean, he didn't do stuff with like, you know, neutrinos or muons or anything like that. But, uh, but yeah, that's what he did. And he's not dead by the way. He's just retired. That's why I say past tense on he was, if his, yeah. <laughs> I presume. What's that? Was that, was that Slack? I presume up, up in the Bay Area? Uh, no, it wasn't at Slack. Oh, it was an really? ATA, which was, um, a, um, a program run through, uh, Lawrence Livermore. Oh, really? Oh, yep. I didn't know that. Oh, wow. Yep. Oh, very interesting. Okay. Um, so I want to talk about language. I've had on, um, as I said, Stephen Wolfram and also Noam Chomsky. And in both of those gentlemen, we talked a lot about alien communication hmm. and how how one would communicate with an alien. Of course, in Arrival, uh, there's an alien species that comes to Earth mm-hmm. and, uh, and 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 uh, actually communicates directly through the spaceship with Amy Adams' character and um, in, in the not wonderful novel by Ted Chiang. <clears throat> and uh, and then of course Noam Chomsky has thought a lot about communication, but always there's a gestural aspect to it. And in fact, as you probably know, Noam, Noam thinks that there is a, 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 basically a component of language communication that is inherently 
um, kind of uh, physiosomatic or something like that, that you that you basically need some way of communicating using your hands or, or some way. What do you think about communication? How would you communicate with an alien species? If you just got a, a beam of, of Morse code, could you communicate with an alien species, do you think? Or how, how would you how would you crack that particular nut? Or how, did, how do you resolve such things? Well, any communication you have, you would have to send something that hopefully they would be able to um, identify as a key on what what things mean, right? And so uh, I don't I, I don't know exactly how you would go about doing that, but it would be difficult for sure. And working out a common language requires pretty much near instant communication, like you and the other party. Like if if you you know if you don't speak a word of like you know Cantonese and you're talking to a Cantonese uh, speaker who doesn't speak a word of English, if you're just like locked in a cell together, you guys will, over the course of probably a day, have a little bit of a shared language. But you you work that stuff out with communication. You point at yourself and say your name. You point at the you point at the floor and say floor and stuff like that. And so it has to go back and forth and back and forth. <clears throat> if there are two species communicating across a thousand-year gulf, you're looking at hundreds of thousands of years before they even start getting a shared language going. Right. That's a so-called Chinese room argument that says a yeah, digital computer in another – it's a version of the – A little different than the Chinese room. Right? The yeah. Chinese room argument is just um, you can't tell the difference between – if a computer understands something or is just regurgitating a preordained list of responses. Mm -hmm. um, this is like aliens actively attempting to understand and collaboratively create a language, but it would still take a really long time if the conversation takes, you know, has to happen over the, over late years. Uh, I want to turn now to the craft of writing, and that uh, will take us to maybe some rapid fire, and then we'll uh, move into some other other domains if you have uh, if you have the time, and then we'll wrap sure. up with my my pat. Yeah. Before we do that, I just need to hit the bathroom. I'll be right. Sure. Back. Yeah. Let me pause. All right. Zoom that. Okay. Great. Okay. So now we're going to get into the practice of writing. All right. Okay. So um, first of all, I'll do one. I'll do one rapid fire question. Um, true or false or yes or no is the best way to sell your nth book to write your n plus oneth book i don't really understand that question <laughs> sorry <laughs> let's say you you wrote you wrote the uh, project hail mary and you um, want to make a really uh, great success do you i've heard that the best way to 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 you know kind of get attention and and get get uh publishers and sell more books is to write your next book uh, yeah, I've never heard that theory before. Uh, I would disagree with it. <laughs> okay. Uh, next question, semi-rapid fire, is um, do you always write a book now with kind of the idea of a movie production coming down the pike? No. I, uh, I, I, and I think that now my style of writing tends to be kind of cinematic, cinematic because I see it in my head like that, but I'm not deliberately trying to make it movie friendly. And, um, that's because my job is to write a book if I want to write. And this is what I tell other writers who are asking for advice. If you want to write a movie, write a movie, write a screenplay, no problem. But if, 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 if what you really want in the end here is a movie, then write a movie. Um, if you're going to write a book, write a book don't sacrifice good plot ideas or good narrative techniques because you think it wouldn't translate well into a film and what about uh artemis what's the status of the movie artemis artemis is um uh the the screenwriter uh geneva robertson Dvorat is working on the screenplay uh she's already made a few revs and sent them to um, the directors we have the directors phil lord and chris miller attached um and uh, that's kind of the status of where it is right now. And we have some artists working on, um, you know, what what the inside of Artemis could look like and, you know, some of the storyboarding, that sort of thing. And I understand that uh, Ryan Gosling is attached in some way to uh, Project Hail Mary's movie adaptation. Yeah, that's right. Um, for Project Hail Mary, MGM bought the film rights and Ryan Gosling is attached to play the lead, Ryan Gosling. Uh, Ryland Grace, 
Oh, yes, that's right. So the lead character's name is Rylan Grace, not to be confused with Ryan Gosling, who is going to play him. Um, <laughs> also, like Artemis, this is also set to be direct by Phil Lord and Chris Miller. Uh, we have Drew Goddard working on the screenplay. He's the, he's the guy who uh, did the screenplay adaptation of The Martian. So obviously his skills speak for themselves. And uh, MGM is really seems pretty excited about it. So I feel like it's got a good chance of being green-lighted we'll see you never really know with hollywood and is that pretty hands-off like would you be in but would you go down would you be involved in it or would you just be working uh well i mean i am involved in uh project hail mary i'm actually a producer on the film so yeah uh, but uh it, the, the reason i'm a producer is um so that i could have some some of the front end gross um just money wise and so uh i'm my main objective is to stay out of the way of the real producers. But the end result is I am involved in a lot of these decisions. I'll offer mm -hmm. my opinions, but I try not to make waves or get in anybody's way. Right, right. Um, <clears throat> next up, I have, uh, let's see. Um, okay, do you write every day? Do you have like a writing target, thousand words a day? Do you have any kind of writing schedule, daily habits, rituals? When I when I'm working on a first draft, I try to make a thousand words per weekday, or more accurately, I try to make five thousand words a week with minimum levels. So, the system I came up with is like: by the end of Monday, I I need to have a thousand words written. By the end of Tuesday, I need to have two thousand words written for the week. Wednesday, mm -hmm. three thousand, and so on, all the way up to five thousand for Friday. That system uh, I kind of worked out over time. That way, if I'm if I'm a, if it's like a Monday and I'm plugging along and I blow through a thousand words. I'm not encouraged to stop, right? I'll just keep going and say, now I'm working off Tuesday's debt, you know? <laughs> so um, that's that's the system I came up with. Although right this moment, I'm just kind of freeform messing around, working on the research for my next book. So I'm not writing yet. Do you have any other rituals, meditation, exercise, uh, sport, like biathlon, hunting, <laughs> yeah. big game, big uh, game hunting? Not, no, not quite so much. Uh, no, no big game hunting, <laughs> no rituals, <laughs> just, just plugging along. Just doing the work, huh? I'm a much more okay, boring guy than people suspect. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's, uh, that's, well, it comes across, but it's a good thing. I think it's okay. better than you're like, uh, living like Hemingway and then, uh, you know, <laughs> oh, well. meeting an untimely end. Uh, okay. Best part and worst part about being a writer, a professional writer. Well, the best part, of course, is that you're your own boss. You get to, yeah. You know, and also, it's one of the few creative jobs where you're basically a dictator. I mean, aside from aside from your editor, you know, giving you notes and stuff, you are the sole arbiter of what does and doesn't go into the story. If you're in film, well, there's a whole bunch of people who get input. There's the, the you know, the the screenwriter, the director, the performers often have things to say, the studio, and so on. But when you're a writer of a novel, it's just you. So that's kind of cool. The downside is, is you have to motivate yourself. There's no one breathing down your neck. I mean, sometimes if you have a contract, then your editor might give you a call. But um, for the most part, the, the bad part of being self-directed is you have to also be self-motivated. And that can be difficult. And I also miss having a team of people that I work with because I came from software originally and I miss like going to work. Uh, I miss, well, of course everybody does right now, but even before the pandemic, I, I missed going to work. I missed being part of a team. I missed, you know, that environment, that camaraderie that comes with it. I, I really enjoyed my job as a software engineer and the last uh, engineering job I had before I left, I, I liked it. I really enjoyed it. And I, I hung on there much longer than I needed to just because I liked the work. I liked my coworkers. So I miss that. I think one of the most surpri surprising things in the book is how prominent and important the role of Microsoft Excel is in this book. <laughs> it's um, true. And uses... uh, the main... Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, yeah. Uh, Ryland ends up using Excel a lot to keep track of a bunch of data. <laughs> it's just uh, yeah, it made me think of uh, one of the dirtiest secrets in the publishing business, I, I, I assume for you too, uh, is that uh, much of publishing is accomplished by emailing Microsoft Word documents across the country with track changes. Is that true or false? True or false? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. No doubt about it. 
there's got to be a better way. Uh, come on, Andy, we got to figure out a better way. I'm we not sure thousands. there is a better way. Thousands. Yeah, there, I'm not sure there's a better way though, because like really? it's a really efficient way. Uh, track changes is track changes in the comments and the notes and stuff like that. That's a really good way of of doing uh, editing passes with multiple people involved. Um, so I've got no complaints with it. Yeah, it's just the maybe whole they, file. And yeah, maybe they could be. Formatting. There could be. Yeah, there could be maybe a more secure way to pass the document around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then real time updating or collaboration or something like that. Eh, I don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. you could do that with Google Docs if you really wanted. But yeah, I just don't like that. I don't need to see each individual letter show up. You know, at the moment my editor is writing a message on the thing, it's okay. And and also. Um, it's best if I don't see anything until he's done and reread them and sent it along. Right. There, there's a lot of midair collisions you could have where he writes a comment and then decides, no, I don't want to say that, but I've already seen the comment. Now I'm working on it. You know, I guess in the nonfiction world, you know, where you're like writing a chapter that's standalone, you, you want to like compile, you know, and just separately write chapters and then compile the whole thing. I don't want to email, you know, 80,000 words every time I change a word in a chapter, but uh, that's a small thing. What about you narrating an audiobook? Any Any inkling to do that ever? No, I don't think so. Um, I'm a, you know, I, I don't consider myself a particularly good voice actor. And also um, the, the narrators that, we've been getting from my books are just fantastic. I mean, so why would I ever want to displace any of them? I mean, I, these are top tier narrators. So I, I, I hope that trend continues. Yeah. Okay. Uh, next, um, best and worst writing advice you've ever uh, received. Well, the best writing advice. Uh, well, I mean, at the risk of sounding douchey, I think the best writing advice is a piece that I came up with, which is um, don't tell your friends and family your story idea. Well, you can tell them the basic idea, but don't tell them the details of the story because it satisfies your need for an audience and saps your will to actually write it. So that's that's a good piece of advice. Um, let's see, bad writing advice. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm having a hard time thinking of any bad writing advice. I, I do know some people who are like, oh, I like to write the fun scenes first and then backfill in with the intermediate, with the connective tissue kind of scenes. And I think that's a terrible idea because you'll write all the fun scenes and then you have nothing but miserable work ahead of you. And so you won't do it. So you'll never finish. That's what I always tell my students whenever they like solve something, I go, congratulations. Now you've earned your ticket to an even harder problem. <laughs> Exactly. Um, do you feel like you've achieved what uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson and I, we discussed as like niche fame? Like he in COVID <laughs> time says he can't even go on the subway with a mask on, you know, like, yeah. like he's too famous. You, you, are you just famous enough? Do you feel like you get recognized your trademark chapeau uh, <laughs> glasses? And No, I mean, I don't get recognized that much. That's the cool thing about being a writer. You're famous when you want to be. Um, yeah, if I'm at a convention or something like that, I'll get spotted all the time, you know. But if I'm just out in the wild, I mean, maybe once a month someone will recognize me. That's about it. And that that's, you know, pre-COVID, back when, you know, you go to the grocery store or a restaurant or whatever. It'll be rare, but it'll happen. Okay. Do you like or hate getting feedback on bugs? Like, a, uh, do you give a bug bounty when someone, one of your readers, say one of my undergraduates finds an error in your book? Um, I like it. Uh, I, I like that my readers are engaged enough to be looking at it at that level. And, uh, you know, I bring it upon myself because I, I tell everyone, hey, I write scientifically accurate science fiction. And they're like, really? Let's see about that. <laughs> and so I, I certainly can't whine if they do hit me with some truth, you know. All right. Well, I got some truth for you, Andy. You ready? Uh, yeah, yeah. I know All a right. few. I know a few that I messed up. All right. Well, you messed up the uh, countries that use the imperial system. United States. There's not two. There's the United States. Mm-hmm. There's Liberia. Oh, I didn't know Liberia. There's uh, like no. Belize, you, right? you do. You do have. I think you say Liberia, oh, but okay. it's Liberia. And then there's Myanmar and Burma. Okay. No, I'm joking. Myanmar and Burma are the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, there's one more typo that so my undergraduate Ben found that one, uh, but I found one that the Earth. You talk about magnetic fields in a planet when you're talking about a certain planet that shall not be named. Right. But you talk about um, planets need a liquid uh, uh, core, a molten core, mm -hmm. uh, like the Earth. But the Earth has a solid core. Oh, we have the uh, molten mantle. Okay. Yes. So those ah. are the only two bugs in the whole book. Well, there's more. Um, there was a, an, an alert reader on uh, Twitter sent me that at one point he powers an, a little white LED with a like a watch battery. Yeah. But a watch battery doesn't have enough voltage to power a white LED, or so I was told. Hmm. I have to think about that. The there's red ones can be lower, but the white ones, I guess, need more high voltage huh uh yeah or or something like that i mean obviously i don't know what i'm talking about here i'm just yeah. going off of um what, what the somebody guy, said yeah what the guy told me hang on a second i can i can find if only there was a kind of a, a worldwide web we could look that up yeah and, but who, who's gonna yeah. do that no well I, I was actually looking for um 3.6 volts um uh, yellow is 2.1 volts um watch battery i'm sure my, oh, my audience is, is going to love here it is he says hi i just finished hail mary yeah. and promise a nice five-star review 40 years of science teaching and only one quibble you can't light a white led with one watch battery uh it needs 3.6 volts minimum so three three cells in series would do it so i guess a watch battery has like yeah. a little bit over a volt like one and a half volts yeah, it has. Yeah, it has watch battery. It depends on the watch itself. Of course, the Apple, a kid have the Apple Watch, or a CR twenty thirty two has has three volts. Yeah. Anyway, tell them to stuff it. Tell no, them to what are you talking it. about? This is what I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking, Andy. Yeah, Come on. I know. I know you're joking, but I'm like these are exactly. I I I open myself by being meticulously no. accurate everywhere else and claiming that I'm accurate. That's right. I bring this kind of uh, this That's scrutiny. You are thinking in public and you are doing what a good scholar should do, which is to be intellectually honest, which is why I knew I could bring up those two <laughs> faux pas, those faux pas. Okay, we're coming to the end here, Andy, I promise. Uh, and the last thing, okay, so we talked about teaching. We talked about um, before I get into, okay, so would you ever want to be a professor? Would you ever want to teach writing? No, uh, no, I wouldn't want to teach writing. No, um, but I might want to teach a science field. I, I really like... I, I don't know. There's something I, I really enjoy explaining science to other people, and so I, I. But I'm not. I'm not deeply, despite what it appears to be when you're reading my books. I'm not. Uh, I'm not really qualified to be like a, you know, upper division professor. But I could probably teach like lower division physics, like like one A, two A, that sort of stuff. I could. I could teach those. And those are the names of our physics classes here at UCSD, which brings me to my last, you know, major set of questions. So I want to ask you about that. Um, I don't think uh, we've ever really communicated about this, if it's not a, too painful. So I had a reader, I had a reader, I mean, I had a viewer, a subscriber, in addition to my mom, and uh, he went to UCSD, and I'm not using his name. I uh, didn't say if I could or couldn't, so I'm just not going to. But he said he didn't have a great experience. And he said he wanted to come on my show anonymously to to talk about why he didn't have a good experience. He was a physics major. Um, and and he said, you know, why don't you ever have on somebody like me? And I said, well, you know what? I'm going to have on someone who dropped out of UCSD. I'm going to ask him the following question. And I'm going to ask you, Andy, what what could we have done differently? You know, is there something that we could have done? We have vast resources. I don't care. We're a public universe. We're building 40-story dormitory with ocean view and everything. <laughs> we have resources. Just because we're a public university, I'm a public servant. I believe it's my responsibility to the taxpayers to, to teach and educate California's students. Um, what could we have done better for, for a student like you? To I, I think it was, it's not me, it's you. I think um, basically I was at a point in my life where I just wasn't really to put it, really willing to put out the effort. Um, I had, it, it, like a lot of semi-smart people, I breezed through high school without really having to do any work at all. Like it was so easy for me. And then you get to college and it's like, it's real work. And I never learned good study habits. I never learned any of that stuff. And so it was just really hard for me. Now, ostensibly the reason I left was because I ran out of money. And that's true. I did. I ran out of money. I couldn't afford to go there anymore. Um, but I mean, if I if I had been working diligently toward a goal and I'd been making, you know, getting 
good grades and was feeling like I was making progress, then I probably would have found a way to make it happen, student loans or something else. So I guess for me, I just didn't feel like super directed. I, I didn't feel like um, I just wasn't in a mindset to really put the effort into college. Also, remember, I was in computer science. And at the time, the tech boom was just beginning. And so there was also an economic thing. I was like, I could either go deeply into debt to continue this and get a college degree, or I can immediately right now start making a decent salary because no one in the tech industry seems to care if you have a degree. Um, also, uh, so I, I don't think there's anything UCSD could have done differently. Although one thing, you know, at the time I was there, I'm sure things are different. It's been a million years, but at the time I was there, um, the, the CS department was like woefully behind the times in terms of what it taught. Like no, we've moved on up to COBOL. We're up now to COBOL. on COBOL. Okay, that's so right. glad to hear it. Yeah, no, when I was and Excel, we teach yeah. Excel exclusively. Excellent. Excellent. No, but when I was there, um, in a world that was all basically uh, C and Java, um, at UCSD they didn't have any classes for C No classes for Java. They had one class for C, straight C, and it was an elective. <laughs> and um, mainly, they taught Pascal. Very proud of having invented Pascal, so they kept teaching it way too long, um, you know. And so, those are those, those are some factors. Also, I I also think that um, in general in this country, people are a little too obsessed with college degrees or acquiring them. They're not as needed for employment as people seem to think, and it's so expensive to get one. It's just like, don't go horribly into debt that's going to take you half your life to pay off just to get an art history degree. So you can become the regional manager of sales at some company. You can go straight into the sales job, you know, it's like, and there are tons and tons of professions out there that where you don't go to college, you go to a trade school. And these are not like, these are critical parts of society. I mean, we need mechanics, we need locksmiths, we need plumbers, we need all these things. And you don't go to college for those. So you don't, I don't know. There's there's some sort of notion that college makes you a properly educated and somehow better than those who don't have college degrees, and I don't I don't like that. And I guess finally, I would say, and this is not nothing directed at UCSD. This is all colleges. For me, higher education should be. I am investing in my future. I'm paying an institution money so that they will teach me the skills I need to go out and be able to demand a higher salary in the job market. Like I'm going to learn, I'm going to learn how to do something most people don't know how to do so that I can get paid a good salary for doing it. Right. But colleges are still stuck in, frankly, this, you know, 18th century gentleman mode of not really being focused on, you know, increasing your skills as a potential worker, but on giving you this comprehensive education. And I'm like, I can understand that happening in high school where you get like a big, broad education because they're trying to bring you up to speed with what we consider a, a minimum amount of knowledge for an adult in our country. But for college, I'm paying you to teach me stuff. So I don't want you, if I'm paying you to teach me how to program computers, I don't want you to say, I don't get a degree until I write a report about Beowulf, you know? So I, I just, uh, and I know a lot of people disagree with me on this, but I don't buy into the comprehensive education thing. I honestly think all colleges should work functionally like trade schools. If I go to a college to in computer programming, that's all I want to hear about when I'm there. Nothing else. <laughs> yeah, very good. Yeah, I agree. And I think colleges are maybe uh, shooting themselves in the foot because you know, eventually it's going to dawn on people that just as, you know, Harvard doesn't teach, you know, so there's not some special brand of physics that Harvard's learned that, you know, I haven't learned yet, you know, like some, there's a fifth Maxwell's equation that hasn't made its way to the West Coast yet. No, we all know the same things. We all teach from the same textbooks. And, uh, and that means it's very vulnerable to disruption via, you know, technology, like into artificial intelligence, like who would you rather learn uh, electromagnetism from Brian Keating or from uh, James Clerk Maxwell? And I think as we get more and more like that, we're, the colleges have to differentiate themselves by the perks. And that's why we have Ocean View dorms here, and we have the Andy Weir Natatorium. You know, right. <laughs> we have uh, you know that's the only way we can differentiate ourselves. And and the uh, you're absolutely right. It, it should have elements uh, of of this, but 
you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a tough nut to crack. But I think if colleges don't rise up to this, you know, kind of serving a customer rather than just like what this ideal system is, as you call it, the 18th century British gentleman, um, which which is kind of the modality it's been stuck in, you know, maybe even longer. I mean, I looked up the first college ever was like in Bologna in eight and 1080. And it's basically some old dude standing up on a stage, scratching a piece of rock on another piece of rock. And, you know, I have a whiteboard now and a, and a marker and that's it. That's the only thing. Well, Oxford was founded in the in the thousands or 1100s. Yeah, that's like right. Oxford yeah, University is older than the Aztec Empire. Yeah, that's right. And <laughs> and almost nothing has changed. There's just, you know, different, different uh, disciplines. And Well, and, I mean, they don't do sacrifices anymore. Oh, you mean Oxford. Okay. Yeah, they still do sacrifices. <laughs> they still do. <laughs> if you go to the pitch, yeah. you'll get uh, Sir Roger Penrose, frequent guest on the show. Yeah. All right, last question just before we go to the final thrilling three. If you could adapt any science fiction novel into a movie other than your own, Andrew, uh, <laughs> what would it be and why? This is from my friend Jacob Kuhn. I think I would go for probably Caves of Steel by Isaac Asimov. Um, first off, it's a really good book. It's in the robots uh, genre, you know, the three laws of robotics and stuff like that. And it's the first book in a series. So it'd be cool if they made that movie and then it was successful and then they made more. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Okay, Andy, we are now in the final section, the so-called Thrilling Three, where I ask the Thrilling Three patented questions, which I patented just a minute ago. Please do subscribe and like and comment on this and go to my website, briankating.com. You'll get notes and resources and get a chance to maybe even win and copy of Project Hail Mary, this wonderful new book by today's guest, UCSD attendee, uh, Mr. Andy Weir. That's a good one, right? UCSD <laughs> attendee. Yep. UCSD mega donor. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I've never donated a cent to you guys. I don't know why. It's gonna I know. <laughs> I think, think donor relations is going to come and get me. Okay. <laughs> the first one has to do with your near future. When you reach the so-called biblical age of 120 years old, what ethical wisdom do you want to put? Not your material wealth, not your uh, earthly possessions, but what material wisdom or values do you want to articulate to give to future generations uh, as an inheritance for the future? Hmm. Um, I don't know. It, it's like, I, I guess I, I would mostly just pass along like, not everyone in the society can relax and kick back. Like, you you have to pull your own weight, I guess. You have to do your share of society's work, I guess. You you, you have to, I guess it's an old thing, but, but um, give more than you get, I guess. Fun fact, in the, in the Bible, there's a commandment to take a day off every week. But people forget that the other command part of that commandment is you have to work six days a week. <laughs> it says you must work six days a week, which uh, some of my kids don't recommend. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> Number two involves an up and coming science fiction writer by the name of Arthur C. Clarke. Oh, and, is and he involves, just, just getting started, is he? <laughs> okay. You, you might have somewhat of a career. At it. You, yeah. might, you might hear of him someday. Anyway, yeah. um, you might remember uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. There are these monoliths, these menacing vehicles or capsules or whatever that are built by some unseen extraterrestrial species, which are eventually discovered by our solar system by human beings. Mm-hmm. And the response of the characters to these messages or warnings kind of encourages humankind to progress. First, they're seen on the savannah in Africa, then on the moon and floating around. In other words, I want to ask you, Andy, if you had an opportunity to make your monolith and have it last as a billion-year time capsule, billion not just years. what would you put on it or in it to kind of maybe triumphantly declare what humankind had learned um, uh, in our existence? Probably a bunch of dick jokes. <laughs> Not fart jokes? You know, that was the oldest joke ever. Okay, there we go. There we go, yeah. No, I don't know. I mean, to people a billion years from now, they're not going to be able to learn anything from me. So I think a value of a monolith from our era would be in learning about our own culture and our own history and what we were doing back in this ancient time. So I guess Mm -hmm. I'd try to impart information about history, our Mm -hmm. history up to the present. Mm -hmm. And that would be done uh, exclusively in an Excel document. Right. Uh, lastly, now we're going backwards in time. And as you know, this Arthur C. Clarke personality had many laws, one of which was uh, for every expert, there's an equal and opposite expert. 
any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And that's how I open the show every week on the show. I'm going to open with his actual voice. It's pretty cool. We got him to read it from beyond the grave. No, we found it somewhere here at the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination at UC San Diego. But his third law states the only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture a little way past them into the impossible. And that's the origin of the name of my podcast. I want to ask you, Andy, what mysterious aspect of life might have perplexed you as a 20-year-old, a 30-year-old, but now makes sense because you had the courage to go into the impossible? In other words, what life advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? Well, I was a real screw-up at 20. So, I mean, I've got, I would probably have reams and reams and reams of things to say to my 20-year-old self. But I guess um, the number one thing I would tell my 20-year-old self is, you have a problem with anxiety and depression. You need to get help for it. Your life is going to suck until you get that help, and then your life's going to get a lot better. So go do that now. So I guess just identifying that I had that problem was, I wish I'd been able to identify and act on it earlier. How did you do that, actually, Andy? How did you how did you achieve that um, betterment of yourself? Well, um, you know, my main problem is anxiety. I mean, I had real problems with depression when I was in my 20s. But as mm. I got older, the depression just kind of became anxiety instead. And, you know, throughout the 90s and stuff, if you, if you wanted to get help for anxiety, it was generally like you'd be told, oh, here, do some breathing exercises or something like that, which is kind of like bringing a bucket of water to a forest fire. It's just, mm. you know, useless. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or just suck it up, you baby, you know, kind of advice. But then um, it's actually when The Martian came out and it got popular and I was horribly afraid to fly. Uh, mm. I am still am, but whatever. Mm. Um, I, I had a huge fear of flying and I was saying no to, you know, people would invite me to one place or another. And I said, no, no, no. But then NASA invited me to Johnson Space Center for a week of VIP tours and I'm like, I have got to do this, right? I cannot, I can't, I, I, I need, I want to do this. And so I, I said like, all right, maybe I can get some pills that'll knock me out, you know, to be on a plane. So I started talking to a doctor, a psychiatrist about that. And um, she said, okay, we can work on that. But also, you know, let's work on the, you know, persistent generalized anxiety that you definitely have, you know? And so she, 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 she ultimately gave me pills that let me fly. And she's like, that's great. But I also want to deal with the long-term anxiety. So I guess what happened was I went to a doctor for one thing and she said, I'll take care of that thing, but also you have this other problem and let's work on that. And so, um, she did. And she gives me, uh, now I have like long-term anti-anxiety meds, um, that I take and they help a lot. They've really improved the quality of my life. It's not like this magic thing. It's just things are now manageable, you know? And um, I do therapy every week, which is if you broke your leg, you wouldn't be surprised that you have to do physical therapy as part of your recovery. That's exactly right. I just started doing therapy as, as part of the podcast. I have a sponsor now who does therapy. And I was like, ah, much, I don't need to do therapy. But I was like, I don't sponsor something unless I actually try it. Mm. So that's why I'm doing these Roman blue pills. I'm taking these blue. I'm just kidding. I'm not doing those. (laughs) But I decided I'm going to do this online therapy. And I have resistance to it because I can solve my own problem. But I've been doing online therapy through through this. I'm not going to mention it because this isn't an ad. But um, but I but I said to myself, you know, I go to a trainer on occasions. I mean, can't tell from this massive physical specimen you see before. But, you know, we have trainers for, we have coaches, we have, you know, all sorts of things. Why not do that? As you say, if you hurt your leg, you'd go to a freaking doctor. And right. and this is just like a coach. So I, I, I think you're incredibly, you know, courageous, but, but I think it's in your self-interest to do it, right? It's my one little, I don't know, you know, for some reason, I guess you get a soapbox handed to you as soon as you're famous. Mm-hmm. But this is my quote-unquote cause is to, I guess, to try to destigmatize anxiety and depression, mm. and just just if you tell if you tell somebody, oh man, I broke my leg, people are like, oh that sucks, man. Sorry to hear that. But if you tell people you're like suffering from chronic depression or anxiety, there's a little bit of a stigma still to it. Mm. And so I, you know, if I can do anything to destigmatize it, then that's good. And you know by just kind of saying like, Hey everybody, I've got this problem. 
One of the mm. most comforting things for me ever was uh, read um, reading um, Carrie Fisher's autobiography. Uh, mm. um, uh, was it something drinks drinking wishful drinking is what it's called, <laughs> and mm-hmm. she's hilarious. Her, her the book is funny as hell, but also it's just it made me feel good to see, you know, Carrie Fisher's problems with like bipolar disorder. And it showed me, Oh, Hey, you can be kind of a little bit broken on the inside and still be incredibly successful and and beloved by everyone. You know, that's Carrie Fisher. Right. Yeah. And a sad epilogue to that is I came within, I came within two weeks of meeting her and I wanted to tell her that I wanted to tell her how much her book affected me. And, but she died, um, um, about two weeks before a convention we were both going to be at. Oh, that's brutal. Yeah, oh, that's that's awful. Yeah, I, all, I once got to meet, almost got to meet Herman Woke, who lives not far from here, and I always wanted to meet. I'll meet him. He died like a, a couple weeks before I got to meet him. But it's it's interesting that you mention all this, Andy, because May our month, right now is Mental Health Awareness Month. I didn't know and that. I think this is a huge service that you do. And, you know, I've always uh, loved it's, it's hard to believe that, you know, you could have even more appreciation and respect than I already did. But, Andy, I want to thank you so much for oh, your uh, for sharing your time and being a friend of the Arthur C. Clarke Center here in UC San Diego. You're, you're always welcome here. Your money's always welcome. No, I'm just of kidding. Course, of course. I'm just kidding, Andy. Um, your Bitcoin, your blockchain. I thought that's what we're going to say is on your monolith. Do- your blockchain. Doge your blockchain. Yeah. Dogecoin. Dogecoin. Yeah. Anyway, Andy, thank you so much for coming on the show. I wish you all the best of success and abundance and 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 serenity too. And take time for yourself. And I, I hope we can get together again. I always love being in your presence. Someday after the apocalypse. <laughs> best of luck, Andy. Take care. All right. Thank you. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Thanks for listening to Into the Impossible with Professor Brian Keating. Please support the show by rating, commenting, sharing, and leaving reviews. We appreciate hearing from you, and it really helps keep our universe expanding. Watch our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating, that's D-R, Brian Keating, and join our premieres Tuesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Follow Brian on Twitter and Medium, and support us on Patreon at Dr. Brian Keating. For exclusive content, visit Brian Keating's website and sign up for his informative newsletter, at briankeating.com. Into the Impossible is produced with the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Produced by Stuart Volko and Brian Keating.